Word Radio On Demand, 96.1 FM and 900 AM WURD. Streaming live at wordradio.com. I want to introduce to the program Dr. Cynthia Estramero, who's an innovative change agent and strategic thinker with over 15 years of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. That's DEIMB expertise in educating organizations and institutions to be champions of inclusive anti-racist culture while promoting workforce authenticity and well-being. And I want to welcome back to the program, Dr. Chris Hunt, who is the vice president and dean for equity and inclusion at Moravian University and instructor for racial and ethnic inequality in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology there. I want to Give a big shout out and welcome to our DEI roundtable. Thank you all both for for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. So uh, I hope you all had a, a a chance to take a look at the Perry Bacon op-ed on in the Washington Post this week. It's not the only thing we need to talk about today, but I just want to give first give the audience a little bit of a synopsis of it, and then ask you if, if you think I've captured it. Uh, Perry Bacon has been in the media. He, he's an African American, been in the media, and and been in journalism for a long time. Um, and in this op-ed, what what he's essentially doing and this is tricky for us because part of what we do with the DEI roundtables we want to, we're trying to identify some of the anti-DEI uh kind of movement the backlash against it over time and and here you have uh a black guy who's who's who who is a journalist so I won't say he's he's left but he's a he's a fair-minded journalist who is who's essentially saying that he used to believe that one of the foundational principles of DI was to diversify your institution, get more people of color in, get women in. Um, he used to believe that by the very function of doing that. So if an administration had more women, more people of color in it, if an institution, a school or a police department had more women or more people of color in it, that it would become more progressive by virtue of those people being there. And then he says he don't believe that anymore. Because what he's seeing, not just in the current Biden administration, but even looking back, what he sees is, is that you have people of color, women coming into these roles and they essentially do not represent the interests of the communities that they uh, demographically or ethnically or religiously or r- represent. Right. And so it is it's a fairly damning indictment of the project of DEI, at least in terms of the that one cornerstone that we could we would advance our society by making these institutions more diverse. Now, uh, uh, Dr. Cindy, uh, Dr. Dr. Chris, have I is that is that a good summarization of Perry Bacon's op-ed in the Washington Post? Cindy, you can take that first. Go ahead. Oh, okay. No, I I yes, it is. Um, I think the biggest problem that I have with his argument is that he's blaming diversity for entrenched white supremacy capitalism in our society. And so I think that that's a really hard Mm. like project to think about in terms of like, how do you use one concept to then say, I don't believe in this when we're talking about the history of white supremacy, capitalism and patriarchy being entrenched in all of our systems and institutions. Ooh, ooh, interesting. Okay. I I think Shaka just fired. Go ahead, Doc. I, I, I 100% agree with that. Um, what Dr. Cindy mentioned, you know, it's, um, it, it was, it, it was an interesting piece. I, I agree with lots of it. I, I also think that, I mean, used the word entrenched, um, the, the system around that person coming in hasn't changed. And so you are going to develop metrics 
by which they are to, to make change. Now, now the other part of it is that there are differences among people of color. There are g- generational differences. You know, a baby, a black baby boomer might have more in common with a white baby boomer than they will with a black Gen Zer, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just the mere presence of a person of color or whatever it is right. doesn't necessarily mean that something's going to change to that generation's liking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I do. And I do agree with that, Doc. Dr. Chris, because I said, like, the, I don't agree with a lot of what he said, but the only thing that I did feel like he was really right about is that greater diversity does not always progress institutions in the same way. And so you can't automatically assume someone's ideology because they identify as someone who has a marginalized identity and that they would sort of necessarily become an ally or someone who is liberal or progressive. So I, I completely agree with that. And I think that we have plenty of examples of conservative folks of color who represent a viewpoint and an ideology that's destructive to so many black people, indigenous people and other people of color. And so part of it is that a lot of people are complicit with the system out of a lot. I say out of fear and hope, mm-hmm. fear of being treated worse and hope for being bestowed with advantages that are greater than the treatment of their counterparts. And I think that sometimes I think he's leveling that as like, this is why I don't believe in diversity, equity, inclusion in our institutions, because I think that there's too much, too much complicit, complicitness, but he's not accounting for the fact that what Dr. Chris said is that the entire system is still remaining the same when people are tokenizing and bringing in leaders of color Mm -hmm. to take on some of these high profile positions and not necessarily have systemic change attached to it. So so I I want both of you to respond to this. There there is preciously little time and space for nuance in our discussions around DEI. And you you I I love the pushback you all are giving to, to Perry Bacon here, but I also would like for you to respond to this. So you're right. Yes, sometimes there are things in institutions that are entrenched and built in systems that 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 make it impossible for any one individual person of color or any one particular woman or any one particular person with a certain background to change the infrastructure of that system. I got it. Even though I think I want to talk a little bit more about that. But but I the way that I'm interpreting this is maybe a little bit more cynical, which is and we'll just call it the Clarence Thomas effect, which yes. is. Which is there are deliberate bad faith actors yes. in this space yes. who are deliberately putting the certain kinds of people of color or certain politically identified kinds of women into roles just to represent American empire or racism or sexism. And, and I call it the Clarence Thomas effect because he re- Justice Thomas replaced Justice Thurgood Marshall, at least in the sort of realm and world of 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 American Supreme Court politics and it, it was a very cynical uh, uh selection and appointment in a lot of different ways if you if you take into account what what happened to Anita Hill in that process if you if you take into account the inexperience of Clarence Thomas and then it has only become more cynical over time as Justice Clarence Thomas has become the face of the conservative movement on that court Right. And so and so can let can we talk a little bit about the the worst case scenario of this, which I'm just calling the Clarence Thomas effect, where there are literally folks who will use diversity to advance racism, sexism, bus unions, all, you know, all kinds of things that are complicit in the systemic power of the institution. 
Yeah, and let's go with that. Let's go with the Clarence Thomas effect, uh, Doc. I, I, I like that. The, your viewers can't see it, but on my wall, I have uh, uh, oh, they can see it, Doctor Chris. You can't see me, but they can see you. They can see it. It, it. It's lift as you climb. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that. That's what we do in the community. But I think what you're talking about is are those characters who they get somewhere and then they kick the ladder out uh, and tell everyone else they need to figure it out. Right. Um, and uh, I think that is um, that is just like a, a grotesque um, way to use your um, your your um, your privilege, um, mm-hmm. really, if, if you will. Um, and so there are there are those I like bad faith actors. Um, I think what and perhaps what happens is they get into these roles and they uh, become assimilated with the role uh, and forget from where they came or for for who they're serving and um, they lose their purpose uh, in the process. Mm. Uh, and so I think I, I appreciate the article for, you know, uh, challenging, you know, DEI professionals or whoever those folks are supposed to be that um, the work is about the lifting as you climb. Mm. Mm. I can definitely see that point of view. I think that, uh, to your point, um, Doc, is just that this is the insidiousness of white supremacy, too. Mm-hmm. When we're thinking about the fact that there are folks that are conditioned to really be in positions and that have been sort of groomed to be in the positions to uphold uh, systems that make others inferior mm-hmm. and that keep others locked out. Like, mm-hmm. it's like, well, we can tolerate this as long as we don't have to tolerate everyone else. And so we're going to bring in a few different individuals that exemplify the kinds of um, ideologies and attitudes and behaviors that we're okay with dealing with mm-hmm. as long as it gatekeeps others from being in those positions. And so I do agree that that's definitely something that's at play in a lot of our institutions, especially in some in our political institutions. Um, and our government. And so I think that it's really important for us to pay attention to that and to be cognizant of the, of the times that we need to hold people of color and other marginalized folks in some of these positions accountable mm. for doing the right thing. And so that's, that is a, a definite, um, thing that we have to work through in terms of when we're thinking about how we're all sort of conditioned to, to function in our society. And when people are in certain roles, how they use those roles, like Dr. Hunt was saying, to really sort of become, in, you know, themselves in that role and perpetuate the same sort of inequalities and in, inequities against other folks mm-hmm. so that they can gatekeep that position. Okay. You, you all you both realize that the conversation we're having is making people throw their hands up about DEI, period. Right. And so and so I mean, as, as you and you're you're both leaders in this space, you're both leaders in this space and and. And have to navigate this. Talk a little bit about what, what's your strategy for this? So, so, so Dr. Sin, you're talking about thinking a little bit more about, about, um, the kind of work that people do and how they think about the world in addition to who they are. That's a complicated thing to do in hiring processes, by the way. Yes. But, but, but a little bit sometimes easier on the academic side because you can literally see the work that they do. You can read the work they do, but, but not always there either. So I'm curious as to, what are the strategies? What's the strategic approach? Because that Clarence Thomas effect cynicism to me, I think it's only getting worse. I don't think it's, I don't think it's retreating. I think it's on the rise. And so how, how, how would you in your professional spaces navigate that in terms of just achieving the diversity piece, um, um, that, that Perry Bacon is pushing back on? So 
One of the things that I did want to address, though, mm-hmm. in, in his article before we move on in terms of achieving the diversity piece is some of the like false equivalencies that he sets about, like having a, a random amount of of black women serving in the roles of Congress. And I was just like, when you highlight that and you say that if if we had Congress randomly select black women, it means that we don't. Right. Like, it means that we don't right. have right. a Congress full of black women. We definitely so, do not. <laughs> so it's demonstrative that he has a sort of lack of understanding that diversity means representation that encompasses intersectionality. And so uh, when we're thinking about the fact that, like, you can't just base your understanding of diversity on one component of someone's marginalized identity. Mm. So it's not a recreation of homogeneity on the basis of one social identity. It's about making sure that we have diversity of thought, diversity of perspectives, not just like diversity of visible and invisible aspects Mm -hmm. of our marginalized identities. Right. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I think that there was some false equivalencies there where I was like, are are you part of the the problem is that people don't understand the purpose and the concepts of DEI in the first place. We don't have some shared terminology. Everybody's thinking about it in different ways. And people are collapsing the ideas on themselves and then they don't really have a thorough understanding. So when he's blaming diversity for this, Mm -hmm. it's not really diversity's fault, right? It's that we don't have diversity Mm -hmm. in Congress. We actually, we can, he can say that Biden staffers are bragging about having the most diverse staff in in the history. Right. Uh, But like, is that, how diverse is it? (laughs) <laughs> like that's debatable right and so right. i think that part of the issue when we're going back to like hiring for diversity and thinking about how do we make sure that institutions are being responsible in their efforts to solidify systems that are diverse equitable inclusive and mm-hmm. that demonstrate belonging is that we really need to be paying attention to the fact that it's all folks jobs like we have a global <laughs> majority mm-hmm. if we've seen and learned anything about the protests against Israel Mm -hmm. calling for a ceasefire Mm -hmm. is that the global majority needs to be aligned with changing the fundamental nature of our systemically racist and oppressive institutions, Mm. regardless of any industry that it, that it is. Mm. So I, in my practice, when I'm doing the work, I'm like white folks, folks with power, folks with privilege have to be a part of the movement for change too. We Mm. can't say that this has to be done on the backs of black women and people of color. Mm. Mm. Dr. Hunt, any anything to add to that, Dr. Hunt? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a lot to follow. I mean, I'm, I'm all in. Dr. Sin, that was good. Uh, what I'll say uh, to your question, Doc, is to remain connected to the people that you're serving, right? Okay. So not to get so high up that, you, that you've lost perspective on those marginalized voices that you're supposed to be uh, representing, because they will keep you grounded, you mm-hmm. know, and they'll let you know what time it is. But if you if you lose sight of that, um, then you can easily get whitewashed into being assimilated and then you kick out that ladder that I talked about before. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. And back to that point, though, uh, Dr. Chris is like, you know, someone who's really highly engaged in the community and you see that on their resume, you you know that that person is proactive and staying connected. And that's a really easy way to determine what they're going to be able to offer your institution. Mm. That's interesting. So we got to get, get ready to take a quick break here. Uh, when we come back, though, since, since Dr. Cindy opened this can of worms, I do want to ask you guys a couple of political questions when it comes to, uh, to, to DEI and, 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 uh, the current, 
uh, presidential campaign. You're, you're listening to Evening Words. I'm your host, Dr. James Peterson. We're live on WRD, 900 AM, 96.1 FM. We're, we're in conversation in our DEI roundtable segment with Dr. Chris Hunt and Dr. Cynthia Estramera and, and, and trying to think together a little bit about the complexities in the Perry Bacon op-ed where he's, he's basically talking about his, his change of heart. With, 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 with respect to DEI, but, but our, our round table's already got with them. Our round table already broken down, but we're going to continue our conversation right after these messages. And now back to Evening Words with Dr. James Peterson on WURD, 900 AM and 96.1 FM, Philadelphia. Welcome back to the Evening Words. I'm your host, Dr. James Peterson. We're live here on WRD, 900 AM, 96.1 FM. We're in conversation for our DEI roundtable segment with Dr. Chris Hunt, who's vice president and dean for equity and inclusion at Moravian University, and Dr. Cynthia Estromero, who's an innovative change agent and strategic thinking thinker with 15 years of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging expertise. So, 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 Doctor Sin, you opened up the can of worms. Uh, you, you all might have been on early enough to hear uh, a caller ask me, like, if I were advising the Biden campaign, what would I tell them? I'm not advising the Biden campaign, but, but, but I, I want to pose that question to, to both of you because, and this is not to say sin that you represent the Latinx community or Chris that you represent the black community, but because we have a little bit of diversity on our DEI roundtable right now, I want to take advantage of it and ask you both like in terms of how you see the world from where you sit in your professional roles, how would you advise this campaign around capturing the imagination and obviously ultimately the votes of the black and brown communities? And and I'm asking that in the context of what I think is the catalyst Behind Perry Bacon's article, which is it seems to me the catalyst is the people of color, the women and people of color in the Biden administration who support Israel and support the U.S.'s alliance with Israel as as, as much and as intensely as anybody else, except for maybe uh, elected officials in Israel itself. And so if and, and maybe that's not the catalyst, but he certainly dials down on that as one of his sort of examples for why he's had this change of heart. And and I can tell both of you that. There are a lot of folks in our listening audience who, who, who think and, and politically see themselves as being in solidarity with the people of Palestine. And some of those folks believe that they, they can't vote for Joe Biden because of that one single issue. So, so I want to back up out of that a little bit and ask you both to, you know, if, if, if the Biden campaign called either one of you tomorrow and asked for your insights about how to conduct that campaign in order to be more inclusive, and to capture the the hearts, minds, and ultimately the votes of 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 our communities, how, how what would you say to them? I think the idea behind symbolic representation and um, and substance is part of the challenge for the Biden administration. Hmm. Uh, I I think they've done you know a, a decent job of the representative. Uh, um, uh, symbolic representation, you know, uh, very proud of Vice President Harris, um, Secretary Austin, you know, and the like. Uh, and yet I, I'm not sure. Well, at least for Vice President Harris, that they have not really been extremely connected, at least in my view, Mm. uh, to, to us. Mm. Uh, and so Mm. it was, I feel like it felt like check, check marks on, on a box. Uh, Mm. and so Mm. I, I, if I, if I were advising that campaign, I, I think 
they should have started this exercise a, a, a long time ago. Mm. Um, and, and not as there's a push to the end of the election cycle. I, I, I don't want to say that it's a lost cause at this point. Um, but I, um, I'm not sure that they've been very good faith actors, uh, as it relates to, um, really being, um, uh, deeply embedded in the hearts and minds of, of these communities. Wow. Wow. Dr. Sin. Yeah, I completely agree with that, Dr. Chris, because I think that there's there was a lot of symbolic representation that was able to sort of galvanize and and it held a certain amount of cachet for some time. And then the disappearing act started. And so I think even with Vice President Harris, it's just it, it was an opportunity to demonstrate significant leadership, um, you know, cachet and be able to really connect with communities and maintain that relationship. And, you know, there just was a falling off and there wasn't opportunities to really stay connected. And now there's like the ramp up and it really exhausts audiences and voters because they're just like, here we go. It's campaign season. And Mm. now you want to show up and now you want us to show up and you're Mm. expecting us to show up. Despite all the promises that you said you were going to make and follow through on that you haven't. And I think especially for my generation, for millennials, like the student loan promise was one of the biggest things that had really uh, made a lot of folks believe in the promise of their campaign Mm -hmm. and the promise of their of uh, uh, Biden's presidency. And even though there have been other things at play, it still fell flat. Mm-hmm. And when you have packages going to other countries that demonstrate that there is money, mm-hmm. it's just not for the things that we want, then there has to be some significant executive level action that mm-hmm. demonstrates that, you know, pen to paper, that you are going to commit to the voters that have, that put you in your position mm-hmm. years ago, that mm-hmm. you would expect them to do it this time, but you can't do that without showing some kind of mutual aid. And this is mutual aid. Like you have to give us in order for us to give you. And so if there's, if that doesn't happen, then I really don't think that there's any hope because folks are exhausted beyond everything else that's going on. There's, there's gotta be some significant executive level action in order to demonstrate that kind of uh, promise is going to move forward for the next four years. Why why do you think the campaign doesn't, doesn't sort of, dial into and and double down on the same kind of position that Biden's taken on this this uh, fairly uh Republican um immigration policy that he's trying to get passed where he's saying every time he talks about it, he's going to say you know Trump is basically blocking it why doesn't he why don't why don't they double down on that on a number of different things like 137 billion is nothing to laugh at in terms of what they forgave in student debt but the reason why it wasn't more widespread and broader is because of republicans like why don't why don't they double down on 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 that on that piece it's the same thing with with getting the prices down for for insulin i mean they're it's going to happen eventually it's happening now but the resistance is coming from the right and they don't seem interested at all in calling that out in the same way they are on on the immigration policy. I don't. I don't. Maybe that's a political calculus. I don't understand. But but what do, what do, what do you think about that, Dr. Chris? Well, um, uh, President Biden had been uh, you know a, a say a creature of, but certainly a, a major character in the Senate for decades. Mm-hmm. So he had always been of the mindset that he could uh, make some grand deal between him and the Republican leader uh, and. Uh, I even up until maybe just a, a year ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, perhaps he was um, trying to make a political 
calculation that he wants to try to keep Mitch McConnell on his good side, uh, whatever that means. But Mitch McConnell is um, he's he's about his work. He's not really thinking about Joe Biden that often. Mm. Mm. I agree. I think that there's a way that you could doc with your point. Like, why don't you double down? Mm-hmm. And because the Republicans do this all the time, they're like, well, they're stopping us and this is happening and we're going to blame them every single time. And so I don't Correct. understand the push for this sort of bipartisan, let's all, you know, work together when there are clearly things that they're not, that they don't have interest in pushing forward. And so it, make it your agenda, commit to your agenda and do what, what you have to do to create that opportunity to push it through. And so I think that. There's just a little bit of naivete. I also think that there is just some general feeling that they can't make things happen. And so they think that they might still need the Republicans. So they're always trying to act in good grace. Oh and it just goodness. really, it's so, it, it's so political, mm, right? So, mm, but it, mm. but the and problem annoying is, is to that constituents. it's annoying. That's what I was going to say. It's, it's, we don't like it right. because we just want you to do what you say you're going to do. Hmm. The other, the other point that I just wanted to make real quick, uh, Doc, you asked if we were advising the campaign yeah. and Dr. Hussain, you said that they want us to sh- show up. Uh, we, uh, we kind of need for him to show, I mean, like physically show up. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we want to see some swagger. We want to see some confidence. We want to see somebody is like, you know, going to walk around and, and say what it is and how it is. Mm-hmm. And you get that from the other candidate. I'm not, I mean, that's, that's just, that's what, that's even what if it's all lies and all bluster, but you do get it. Yeah. 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 Of course. Um, and so this is not going to be a campaign where he's going to be able to, um, duck, duck and, and, and stay off the radar. He's going to have to show up. And mm. I haven't seen that yet. Mm. Dr. Sin, you want to add to that? I, I see you shaking your head. No. Yeah. I agree. I think they both need to show up. Mm-hmm. I think, uh, Vice President Harris has to show up too. And I think that that's going to be integral because, um, we just can't, I think it's still going to be problematic. People are still going to wonder where you've been, mm-hmm. right? What you've been mm-hmm. up to, what you've been doing. But I think that at the end of the day, if you don't show up in certain spaces and directly confront the issue for what it is and stop scapegoating, mm-hmm. then there's going to be enough that people feel strongly about not voting for them when they think ultimately it's going to result in a loss mm. and a failure and a turnover to a Republican candidate. All right. So I have a tough question for 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 you, for both of you. We only have a couple minutes left, so we kind of have to get through it quickly. I I, I we, we spent a lot of time at the DEI roundtable, again, identifying the, the, the movement against DEI, which I think is important. But I also want to add to this a little bit like wh- what when you when you look across the sort of you know, a panoramic view of DEI initiatives across institutions. And again, a lot of these have been rolled back. A lot of, of, of positions have been uh, eliminated. But is, is there a sector or an industry or an organization where either of you think that they're getting it right? You can see the progress. It, it makes sense. It's, it's sustainable. It's, it's, it's not, um, lip service. It's, it's made the organization more innovative or more profitable or whatever. It, when you, when you look across the, the sectors that have dibbled and dabbled in, in, in DEIs, maybe, maybe some of them have done more than dibble and dabble, but you know what I mean? That, that have taken on these initiatives. Is there any school or any institution or any department or any company that you look at and you say, Hey, they're, they're doing it right. Yeah, I, I think, uh, I, I can start with that. 
uh, not to, to name any one particular organization mm-hmm. or industry, but I, I do think that we could, as a, as a, as a profession, do a better job at providing more entry points for engaging in this work. Mm-hmm. I think oftentimes the work gets, um, pigeonholed, if you will, or it gets, it gets typecast as, oh, that is strictly about race, ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, or that is only about LGBTQ initiatives. And I think when we are able to successfully um, sort of broaden the, the the scope of the work uh, and include generations, include uh, religion and, and faith, and include these other... The dimensions uh, of diversity. ...of identity, mm-hmm. that provides more entry points. And I think those organizations that are able to capture the hearts and minds of more people because they are expanding to more different identities are the ones that are able to sustain the work beyond just we talk about this or we talk about that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dr. Sin, you want to weigh in on this? Yeah, I can add um, one of the movements um, that I feel like is is on the on the verge of becoming pretty successful in their anti-racism work is the B Corp movement. And so those are B corporations. Those are businesses that have sustainable business models and they are certified. Um you, you're talking about your Ben and Jerry's, right? When you're thinking about ah, activism yeah. and, mm-hmm. and businesses that stand 10 toes down, mm-hmm. that's what you're thinking about when you're thinking about the B Corp movement. And they have active initiatives to support a lot of their business leaders on their anti-racism journey. They have WMRJ, which is White Men for Racial Justice. Mm. Um, and they're, you know, working with white men across the country that are starting to like create a movement to really focus on anti-racism in their business structures. Mm-hmm. And so that's really changing the tide about what a sustainable, co- you know, s- uh, corporate social responsibility looks like in a business model. And if as B Corps continue to grow as they are, mm-hmm. you're, you're seeing an increase in the support for BIPOC businesses that are thinking about a lot of these models that prioritize wellness and belonging. Mm. And they're just really innovating the structures that they can provide. They're even like piloting a four day work week and making sure that that's something ooh, that's sustainable. Ooh, wait, wait, so, wait. Can we get that pilot over here, yeah, please? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so I think that they're, they're really doing some innovative things. Um, Shout out to Jorge Fontanes, and he's from Philly, and he's uh, the CEO of B Corp um, in U.S. and and Canada. And so it's a global movement, but I think that there's just some really cool best practices that you can start to think about systemically about applying across the board to different industries. That's awesome. We're out of time, and I I have to let both of you go. I I really appreciate you taking time out of your very busy schedules uh, to join the DEI Roundtable. I hope you both will come back very, very soon. You've been listening to Word Radio On Demand. Listen live at 96.1 FM, 900 AM, and online at wordradio.com.